Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Mm -hmm. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done around 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. I say that to YouTube viewers because we've got it organized in several different ways on the Batgap website, which would be hard to organize on YouTube. I mean, you can do playlists, but if you go there, you'll see. Check out the past interviews menu. There's about four different ways that the interviews are organized. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative viewers and listeners. So if you appreciate it, would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the site, and there's a page which explains alternatives to PayPal. And I also encourage you to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel if you wish, and also check out the menus on BatGap because you'll find some things that I don't have time to go into right now. My guest today is Alea Dickinson. Alea lives in Asheville, North Carolina. I first became aware of her because I'm on the mailing list for something called the Asheville Sangha, where they have, you know, they have little local meetings and things. I've been getting those mailings for years, and often I see Alea coming up. So, you know, we just decided to check her out and checked out her website and everything, and she looked very interesting. And um, indeed, I think you'll find her to be. So here we are. Hi, Alea. Hi. Good to meet you. Well, I've already met you in the last 10 minutes, but now everybody else is meeting you. I listened to several of your other interviews that you did, podcasts and things, and I've read your website, and I got the feeling that it might be best if we do a chronological biography way of approaching this, even though you've done that previously elsewhere, but most of the people seeing this now will not have seen or heard that, and it, it seemed to go well that way, and I'll interject questions as we go along. Let's start fairly young, because as I recall, when I heard your thing, you did start fairly young in terms of something that would be relevant to the discussion we're about to have. You know what I'm alluding to? That would be very young. My earliest memory that I have is of this moment. It's very simple. I mean, I couldn't have been more than, I had to be under four years old, three, something like that. And I was just waking up from a nap and there was a awareness there that like all the colors were really bright. There was a fullness. There was an awareness of, I mean, I just couldn't describe it actually. And it's really kind of hard to describe it now. Better would be as I got older and how it, it just remained. It remained my strongest moment, a full moment. The moment felt as I got older, I was able to say, that moment, that period after waking up from that nap was much later. I say was awake and I was just awake. Parents could use this as an incentive to get the kids to take naps. Right, right. <laughs> you could write a children's right. book. You should take yeah, your nap. Yeah. What I was thinking and feeling as I got older, I reflected that it was much more possible than the age I actually was. It wasn't like a knowledge kind of knowing. It was what, as I got older and opening more to the depths of true nature, where I was able to see it was same, same, but it was also this really beautiful 
in my life as things opened that really helped the supported the relaxing, the trusting. I would also say in that opening, I realized much later that it really left me very open. And the way I describe it is I would have said growing up, I had a lot of common sense. It made the most sense to listen to what was here more than out there. Not all the time. I always say I did get in trouble. I did do things that weren't great, but I tended to not be so much of a repeat offender. You tried things. Yeah. The connection inside and this very ordinary feeling that it was what I, now my language would be like bow to, but really like follow or listen. So it sounds like what you're saying was that when you had this experience waking up for a nap when you were three or four, it wasn't just a thing that lasted that afternoon, but it was a, a watershed moment for you. It was a shift after which things were never quite the same. Yeah. And that's a hard one to talk about when you're that young. Right. And even as I was growing into my teenagers and college years, I mean, it was so alive with me. It felt like a memory, but it also felt very present. And so even all, even as you went into teenage and college years, you kept remembering that thing that happened when you were three or four. It, it was that significant. Yeah, it didn't even feel like a remembering. Right. It just felt alive and present, almost like no time. And there would be a curiosity of like, maybe trying to figure it out. Like but what then was it? I would find like a gushy feeling in my brain that just would kind of... <laughs> We kind of end the desire to like try to make too much of it. I heard a lot growing up inside the words would be not for you or don't pick that up. You'll have to drop it later. Kind In terms of, of the habits or behaviors, you mean? Yeah. Or even something that might be like hold directions in life. I would feel I could do that. But I, my sense is that's not what I'm to be doing. This yeah. Life. Interesting. Boy, I wish it. I had that when I was young. <laughs> yeah. So it, I just felt like this really strong. Guidance. It, yeah. It, and I wouldn't have even called it guidance then mm-hmm. because, you know, I wasn't particularly spiritual. I did come from more of a traditional Christian background, yeah. but that wasn't like a very intense background where my heart was deeply involved with it. My heart was more with what was arising in me. And that just felt like what I was to listen to. And I yeah. felt like it sounds like an in- of- intuitive sense woke up an intuitive yeah. knowing. Yeah. And it felt very ordinary, very regular. I didn't talk about it to anybody. My assumption was maybe everybody else was the same way. Yeah. You know, I didn't have like a community. I didn't feel drawn into a community even as I got into college or in my 20s, I actually felt really drawn into life and to lots of different experiences and not really ones that had to be super dramatic in the dualistic sense, like to be rich or powerful or those things. But what I would hear or feel is I want to experience life, all the ordinariness of life. You yeah, know, I mean, I heard you say that you were life. It felt it's always felt very exciting for me. Yeah. And then whatever that particular life is that's happening here. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of this guy I interviewed named Christian Sunberg. 
when he was about 30 years old, he had this clear recollection of the time before he came into this birth. And the reason he got inspired to take a human birth was that he met some being on the other side who was just glowing and amazing. And, and, and Christian said to the being, wow, what happened to you? <laughs> Where are you? And he said, oh, I've been on earth. I guess it was such a learning experience for that soul that Christian got inspired to do the same thing. And it's a long story. People should watch the interview. I get the feeling like just the way you phrase that, that I don't know how many lifetimes you may have had, but that there's a kind of an innocent enthusiasm about exploring the possibilities that human life have to offer and a, a freshness to it as if, you know, you're kind of excited to try this and try that, but you had some guidance that prevented you from trying the really destructive stuff. Yeah. And if or I like intuition again. Yeah. Yeah. And I would kind of skirt it pretty closely sometimes. <laughs> Did you go through a teenage drug phase, for instance? No, no, I never really got too involved with, but I might've like hung out in the scene or knew people that were really struggling, but I seemed to really get what felt like the mirror that was required for me really happened in that where I could say what I would now say is a bunch of nette, you know, like not this, not this, but it was not in a judgment way, just sort of like in a direction I was going in life. Yeah. Don't need to do that. Right. Yeah. But an excitement to just be in life and experience life, a deep joy, actually. That's always here of just like, what else can be experienced? It's like the sense that being awake in the world and it's never been this flavor before, like the snowflake. Yeah. I know what you mean. Some people say that joy or the expansion of happiness is the very purpose of life and possibly even the purpose of the whole universe that, um, and we as sense organs of, of the infinite, we're wired the same way God is. If you want to use the word God and we take delight in the expansion of happiness, however we find it. And obviously all the spiritual traditions talk about where to find it and where not to find it and things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't come with a lot of spiritual traditions. I love that. It's not that I haven't picked up some things along the way. Right. You know, and found that earlier on, not a service, as a parent time has gone on, that it becomes of service. What's that? You're saying it becomes a service? Yeah. I don't know. You're like unknowing everything. Unknowing. Right? Okay. And then when you unknow it, it's like the mountain no mountain and then the mountain. Right. Right. So it's like you unknow it, then it appears again. And then it's like no longer separate. Huh. Okay. So let me try to interpret that. So what you're saying, I think, is that you go through stages where you disconnect from the conventional habitual way of understanding or perceiving a thing into a more of an unknowing state. And then you reformulate into a you know more functional phase where you interact with the very same things but from a different perspective is that what you're trying to say yeah as some a word that i'd say is like the unmoved mover yeah that makes sense sometimes i'll explain like it may be not the mountain but like i say a blade of grass so you have the word grass in your mind and that's you knowing something It really has its own mirage in there because you have a condition. And when you look at the grass, potentially you're going to have this separate experience from it. 
But if you go through this unknowing, like I don't really know that it's grass. Grass is a made up thing of the human condition. It's even called grass in our particular language, but not in another language. So it's like really fishy, you know, (laughs) with a whole bunch of holes right away. And then when you let go of that, there's an energetic shift, a dissolution of the separation. And then you're energetically, it just naturally comes online to have this direct experience with what's here. And if you don't know it's grass anymore, then there's this oneness that comes online and not, maybe not even that. I always feel like saying oneness is a little too much too, right? We have to let that one go also. So there's this unknowing of it and then that unknowingness. And then the word grass can come back and it's not a problem. Yeah. And it would be right? a problem if it didn't because you have to function in life. And you have right, to- right. So that's the embodiment part. That's right. the joy. If you don't ever inquire into what's going on there, you don't get to have the direct experience of what's actually here. It's the destruction of it before that whatever you've learned can be at service. Mine will be at service to separation very easily. It's just natural. It seems like the most primary energy that it just does it. But as soon as you inquire, mine just reorients to presence, right? And to, you know, the primal energy that's direct, direct without the middleman, right? Or without this, this strange experience we have, psychological experience of separation. So have you found yourself doing that over and over and over again over the years, you know, with this, with this, with this, with this, or, okay, now I'm doing it with a cup. Now I'm doing it with a cow. Or has it been more of like just an all in one fell swoop? Reset, pushing the reset button and then coming back into life. Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say it's, it's all of those things. Yeah. You know, it's like not one thing or the other. And sometimes it's objects like curiosity coming up and this feeling of separation and also different qualities to it at different times of my life, you know, and how I was functioning as I've gotten older inquiry has, I'd say words like deepened. I don't want to make too much about that, but I would say early on the questions as a child, it would be like, I would see my environment and just have this sense that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. That was the initial stuff that was coming on. It was just like the insides of like what I wasn't seeing in the mirror, what I wasn't seeing in the world it was not reflecting what was here. So there was like this fishiness and this not rightness. And then once I got in high school, it became pretty painful. There were specific things that were going on in my life that were really becoming very cute with that story. Like this is not the way it should be. And I had a few people that mirrored some things to me, like a school counselor and an aunt that's not really your aunt, but you call aunt. Like they do in India. Yeah. Auntie, everybody's an auntie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But she was just the one that would come in and be like, you are beautiful and and your heart is good and and your insides know what's true for you. She just lived that way too. So I was very blessed to like have that mirror and go, this is what's true. And I became very tuned in to that kind of life force energy more and more so. I guess that's part of the nete, not this, not that too, of like going into something. And it really became that simple, I would say, energetically. I didn't experience a lot of this as very complicated. 
It was sort of like a feeling of openness or life force or aliveness, yeah, like closed energy and kind of being like a bee to flower in that respect, being drawn more and more to those. And it wasn't necessarily going a spiritual path. I loved horses and animals that had so much life and light because it wasn't functioning from separation. Animals became a very important part of my growing up. You told me earlier that you have five dogs even now. Yeah, yeah. And growing up, it was like being with animals. I spent most of my time after school, all those things. So it was where I could be in unconditional love right? with the unconditioned. And then when I got older, it started coming in other ways. When I would start having relationships and maybe do something where my actions hurt them. That's sort of like where I say I did it. And then I wasn't necessarily always a repeat offender. Not that I wouldn't do it in another variation, but it, it would hurt me to hurt someone. There was a lot of sense of like not wanting to do that again in that right. way. Immediate feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it wasn't said to me clearly, I could sense you could it. feel it. Yeah. It. And so it was a driver to clean up stuff, clean up karma. As I got in my 20s, 20s, I just really had a blast. It was a lot of fun. But there became a point in time where I was a bartender at this really great bar. It was very diverse, very like Appalachia folks that lived in Atlanta had come in to work in these mills, but the mill had closed, but the folks still lived there. And it was like a double wide trailer and had little glass boots for shot glasses. It was great. But the people that lived that community came to that bar, but there were also all kinds of people. We had the dragon of the Ku Klux Klan come in or like some really cool people like the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, like no, not the Dixie Chicks. Who was it? The, the Indigo Girls was it that came in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you like, said. Yeah, different but people. Come did they in play there, or they just came in to have a drink? Just try to drink. They never played oh, there, you okay. know. Because so, or... I wondered about the Indigo Girls playing in a double wide trailer. <laughs> no, but there were some really good people that ended up playing there yeah. that made it big. Cat Power. I don't know if you know Sean Marshall, but yeah, it was a very very hip place. Part of it was because it was, and I thought it was very interesting because. All these different people were coming together and sitting in a bar and drinking a beer, you know, and they weren't hitting each other and being rude to each other. It was, it was this copacetic environment. And some part of me, it was like a sense of, I don't know, two things, how amazing it was, but then also this joy that I'm having here, these people that I'm meeting here right now, it's not love. Something really was coming online for me, this interest in heart. I also felt very drawn to quit that whole thing. It was a phase. Yeah, just quit that whole thing. And after quitting that whole thing, not long afterwards, I had another nap. (laughs) Sleeping your way to enlightenment. (laughs) But at the bar, it was sort of this really openness. Like, okay, I also heard, okay, you've done this. This has been great. It's time to get to work. But it was not the kind of work like I was to go get another job. It was definitely, I could feel it. It was time to wake up is really what I was feeling. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have any kind of context for that. But the sense that 
It was this energy that I would now say it was like inquiry becoming really geared up. Let's see. After that, I would say I was dating a fella. He was remodeling his house. I was kind of coming over for hanging out in the afternoon, took a nap, woke up. They were all gone. It was, I'm aging myself, but it was when the Olympics were happening. And there's, there's um, been a lot of every four years we have an Olympics. So in Atlanta, amazing. though, the Olympics. Oh, that was right, we, where they had the bomb. Yeah, this right. year was in Atlanta. I woke up in the house by myself and it felt the same as when I was four. So that was really beautiful because there was no grasping or fear happening. But immediately I was just whatever I was looking at, like the doorknob or the you know, I ended up on the front porch and just looking at the trees and I was the tree and I was the wind and I was the light. And I remember my boyfriend coming home and trying to explain it to him. And it was okay that he couldn't understand. There was nothing that was really going to arise in that. And we went out to dinner. I saw friends. I was talking and it all was being very integrated I just remember looking at folks and just life force everywhere, just life force. After a period of time, I remember being on my front porch in Cabbage Town. I don't even know. It might have been a few days. It might have been a week. Cabbage Town is a suburb of Atlanta or something? Yeah. I was just on the front porch on the swing and it just started creeping in. This, holy shit, I'm not going to be able to go back. I'm not going to be able to go back. Back to what? The way you I had didn't been, understand, you but I think it was the way I was functioning before. Yeah, yeah, you had a new way of you functioning. You know, and I had this vision come up where it was Dorothy with her shoes, the red shoes, and going, I want to go home, I want to go home. And this is the funny part because I was doing that, I want to go home, I want to go home, and it was hurting me. It was like being stuck. I was seeing myself at the same time like a shoebox. And like shoving myself into a shoebox. And it took a tremendous amount. I had to wrestle to get my will to come back and to literally get shoved it back into the box. And my energy went down really quickly. All of the intimacy around me started to fade. And I had relief in this very weird way. It was very strange. It wasn't like a relief of the heart. It was, you know, how we placate ourselves in separation. Do you kind know what I mean? Kind of a letdown, probably. Huh? Letdown. Yeah, yeah. But I felt that I had somehow both won something and lost something. But in the same regards, I will say, if you listen to the rest of that interview that I did, that I was tremendously changed after that. Whatever was happening before, this like connection to my heart connection to my knowing, it was on steroids after that. My whole life changed. I sold all my shit. I just felt my whole life changed. I left my job. There was a few things that happened in between. Like I was being drawn to go get my master's. And then quickly I, I like went to go visit Naropa. And when I got there, I beelined it to Sedona. But then when I got to Naropa, all I could think about was Sedona. When I went to Sedona, I found myself at the foot of Cathedral Rock and that another deepening there, right? It's like going up the mountain, trying to get to the top. And then by the time I was at the top, I was 
it took like four hours instead of 30 minutes. And I was like crawling around with the bugs and, and you know, I mean, the warm rocks in my pocket. So when I went to Naropa, which I went ahead and did that trip, it was all just this kind of deepening of presence, this fire that was just, I could no longer deny. So it just continued. For some reason, when you told that story about getting back in the box, it reminded me of a cat we used to have who loved to get in boxes, which cats love to do. But one Mm -hmm. time we had this really small box that was only half the size of the cat. And the cat must have tried for an hour to get into this box. You know, it was kind of putting its front end in, but the back end wouldn't fit, put its back end in, but the front end wouldn't fit. And it was going on. It was hilarious. We should have filmed it. But it's a good metaphor, I think, for what people sometimes try to do when they find themselves suddenly in a much vaster orientation than they're accustomed to. I had a spiritual teacher who used to tell this story about this guy who lived in a hut. And someone told him, see that big castle over there? That's your true home. You can leave this hut and go to that castle. So he starts out and going toward the castle. But then there's this fear that comes up. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know. Maybe it's not really my castle. And I better get back to my hut where I'm used to it, where I feel secure. Yes. So there's this syndrome that I think a lot of people go through. I've been dealing with a friend who's been going through that and fear of the unboundedness that's that's dawning in her awareness, or if you want to phrase it that way, and like holding on for dear life. And I think she's finally made the shift and has just surrendered into that and finds that she can function. The castle is better than the hut. She can, she can yeah. function a whole lot better, you know, in this faster state. Yeah, it is. It's like an apparent transition or deepening of this small, narrow way of functioning and it releasing or dissolving. And then the what is that remains our nature, what's always been there. It doesn't have a initiative to do anything about it. But as soon as we open up to what we're turning from, right, or what we're not opening to, then it's like a crack that grace just goes right into true nature, our direct experience goes right into. And then we have space or our way of functioning and thinking and everything reorients itself to our direct wisdom. Knowing what you know now, how would you explain the reluctance or the fear to open up into this vaster reality and the attempt to scurry back into our hut? What do you think are the reasons or the mechanics of that? You know, I think we could talk about it in many different levels, but that primal resistance that creates separation. Sometimes I'll say what's unconscious, unmet, unloved, and that it holds it together. As we open up to whatever that is, and life is always showing us that. It's always showing us what's unconscious and love. It's like right in here inside and it's repeating itself. So as we do that, it becomes, I say it actually gets hotter. My experience is it gets hotter. Hotter? You mean like temperature hot? Temperature hot, energetic hot, fear hot, the whole thing. Because what it is, it's going more from this experience of being able to point it outside of yourself and say that person did it or that's over there. When you start feeling that, it becomes very present and it becomes a direct experience. And then that kind of hotness is very different when you're not looking outside anymore and it becomes very present. The psychological story is less acute 
You're not talking about a particular situation anymore. You're really just feeling the energy that's prior to anger, the energy that's prior to jealousy. You know what I find when I talk to folks, when you really start going deeper and feeling inside that follows that energy to the root of the suffering. We don't have to say that isn't something that the mind needs to know. If you just feel it, there's a gravity, like an energetic pull. Once we start being really tender with, it's like our heart desire, you know, is really, we'll feel the energy to meet that. And to not only meet that, it's like to really allow, to fully be here. But it also tends to get us closer to that primary, really core energy of separation, which means death to ego. And we perceive it as death. And our body kind of perceives it as death. We have a confusion about it and and the way we function from a separation because, you know, in that fear, we're not really in connection with our energy and our unconditional love, unconditional love. So that whole moving in is like what's required to come home, but it also is full of where you start going, oh, uh, death, or this has to go. What was I doing? Now I'm having to welcome this. I feel like it's a very natural untying, and then tying is always ultimately leaving us with this deep bowing of ending everything that we had that held together the pain and suffering, and then the confusion turning into the experience of this and that of you're over there and I'm over here and we're separate beings and I'm all alone. That's the real trauma of our condition, the suffering of duality, or you could say other words. No, it's good. There's so many myths and legends and so on about the hero being comfortable right where he is, like Bilbo Baggins. He didn't want to leave the Shire, you know, go off on this big, crazy adventure, but then he has to go. And all this stuff happens, and then he finally gets back home, and so much has been accomplished because of doing it, and home is never the same again. There's a T.S. Eliot poem where he says something like, we'll come to the end of all our seeking and know the place for the first time, and end up right where we started and know the place for the first time. Yes. Um, Oh, I love that. You know that poem? I love it. Somehow also, as you were speaking, I was reminded of the caterpillar who builds its cocoon and then gets in the cocoon and then turns to mush and then doesn't look like a caterpillar anymore or a butterfly. It's just mush. And then the imaginal cells in the mush start Mm -hmm. to form a butterfly and it eventually comes out as a butterfly. But if a caterpillar could experience fear, there must be something very fearful about turning to mush. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But as you're describing, we're the only creatures that have the capability to resist. You look at nature and it's showing us all the time. Everything is always pointing and showing us presence and the unconditioned and change. You know, some people argue we don't have any free will and maybe ultimately we don't, but I think that at a certain stage of growth, we certainly feel like we do and you have to be true to the stage you're at. I sometimes think of it as like a little child doesn't have any free will. The parents just tell it what to do. And then it becomes a teenager and goes wild and starts exercising its free will. Or actually, they say terrible, too, as you start doing that when you're two, you should know. But then eventually you become an adult and you have your own autonomy and motivation. 
speaking very broadly. I think evolution is like that in a way where, you know, like the animals and the caterpillars and so on, they're just totally on nature's command and in tune with nature and they have no choice. Then the human life, ordinary human life, we're like the teenagers who try things out and have all kinds of drives and experimentation. Then the sage, someone who's really awakened, in a way they don't have free will anymore because they are so in tune with God that it's just God's will. But there's this no man's land you have to go through to get from the innocence of the animal to the innocence of the sage. Yeah. And you're kind of saying more about like how we were talking about with the grass, knowing it and then not knowing it. And you're talking about this live wisdom that comes online. Yeah, I think that's a good connection. There's just this disassembling phase that we have to go through before everything can be reassembled in a better way. And I actually think the whole society is going to go through that and is already beginning to disassemble more and more rapidly now. And we're going to see a lot more of it in the coming years. And hopefully on the other side, there'll be a a reassembly into something much better. Yeah, that's an interesting word, reassembly. What do you mean by that? Well, like the caterpillar, it has to turn to mush before it can become a butterfly. It can't just go straight from caterpillar to butterfly. Some would argue, and in fact, I did a whole interview with a guy named Dwayne Elgin a few months ago. He felt that there was, and many traditional cultures have felt that there's going to be this breakdown or disintegration of all the tried and true and trusted systems and structures because they just wouldn't fit in a more enlightened age. And so they're going to have to crumble somehow. And then hopefully we'll rise out of that into a very different way of doing things. And we we do tend to see it here and there around us. The old ways are not working. The reason I bring this up is I think that patterns repeat themselves on different levels. And Mm -hmm. the stages of growth that a human being goes through in the course of their spiritual development can be possibly mirrored in the stages of growth that society goes through or will go through as it transitions, hopefully, to a more enlightened age. Yeah, I tend to not do too much thinking about all that. I think too much. (laughs) Yeah, I tend to not, because I find that's a little bit of trouble. Maybe it's too hypothetical for you also. Well, it's just that we can't really know. Maybe I see the way energy could possibly move in some future. You know, maybe there's something to that, because when I feel into it, the whole future past, like it feels like it's all just here now. So I feel like there is this way of connecting more. We're here in the present moment brings us to this availability energetically, you know, when we're saying we're all one, when I say we're all one and not even that, like, what does that actually mean in direct experience? I can kind of feel into things as Neilam would say, or Adia would say this to me too, in a different way that it's a lot of trouble to like do too much there because what serves all of that is here and how can we be truly of service and my own inquiry every time i went in in that way it's always been my greatest service is to wake up and it's to wake up and then i don't know how service here will move and be because the deeper i open to that then it really is the equalizer and kind of what you name this whole show about Buddha at the gas pump. That is that equalizing. The more I become nobody, 
the more that nothing is here. And those are just words. Those are words that hit the ego really rough because it's annihilation words. But I can feel it. The unconditional love is here. However it looks and arises, how this unmoved mover moves, my words and what comes into my brain and thoughts, it gets to be at service. And part of becoming nobody, becoming invisible feels very, very important to that because it's not actually true. It's true only in the ego sense and experience. What's not actually true? That we're limited in any way. It's the piercing of that so that the returning of our true nature functions. And then in there, we can be at service. Anything that's going on with that turning or that no, then it just remains. It's kind of like gloms on on top of our nature and it just gets to keep being somewhere in all the things that we do. And then that's karma or conditioning. And then it gets to play out. But it's not that that's a right or wrong thing. It's just that if we're searching, if our deepest desire, our deepest prayer is to know the truth and what's real and alive in here, then when we meet what it is that's suffering here, that's confused or wants power or wants something out here. Adia, I love his words of the hungry ghost, just never ending. We transform all of that energy into no longer trying to derive our energy from the other, which is this illusionary dynamic. And then we find that all the energy is already here, full and complete. You know, it's where the unconditioned lives. I was having a conversation with a friend last night, and he was telling me that Ananda Maima used to say that the best thing you can do for the world is just to wake up yourself. And she didn't put a lot of emphasis on doing anything more than that. We were contrasting that with somebody like Ama, who um, just inaugurated the biggest private hospital in India, 2,600 beds, and has all these orphanages and schools, and all this stuff that she's been doing all these years. And my conclusion was that different people have different roles to play, and you can't say one is better than the other. Everybody's wired differently, including saints and highly enlightened mm-hmm. beings. Some of them may live in a cave and you never heard of them. Others are like world famous, and, mm-hmm. but they're each doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And I, I don't know if, if that pertains directly to your point. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think what you're talking about is maybe if we say the result, it's always happening anyway. Good. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Neelam and Adya because they've probably been your two biggest teachers and uh, we haven't really talked much about them yet. So perhaps you'd like to talk about your relationship with them, how you met them, what effect they had on you and stuff like that. I've interviewed them both multiple times. Well, maybe a pointer where to start. Neelam was first. So where were you at before you met Neelam and what stage were you at and how did you come to meet her and how did she serve as a catalyst for whatever happened to you after that? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess if we were going back to early part of the interview, the Sedona part, there was that initial time that I went to Sedona, and then I actually came back home after Naropa and decided not to get my master's, and I packed up all of my stuff and sold a bunch of things, got a truck, and went back to Sedona. And really, it was not much of a thought. It was just that I really could not not do it. It was There was so much 
fire inside of me. There was so much direction and the direction was to get to Sedona. And pretty much as soon as I got there, within a week, it was not very long, I ended up being introduced to some folks that were living in Sedona. And I did not know who Robert Adams was, but he was a Papaji devotee student. He had recently passed, but there was a community that had lived there to be with him. And it was very recent, but they were still living there. So I ended up renting a room in their house. And within a few days, they were going to see a teacher. And then it was just, hey, come along, see this teacher. And I said, yeah. And then I was at the feet of Neelam. So the draw being pulled there, everything was just, they just felt like the grace was rolling the red carpet out. And just, yes, yes, yes. And at this meeting, there were at least a hundred or more people there. I was in the very back. She was gazing around and just in her gazing, Initially, her eyes laid on me just in her moving by. And it was a, I didn't know what a transmission was, but it hit me so completely that I knew immediately that I experienced unconditional love. And what came through my mind was after the meeting was this woman loves me completely, but she doesn't have to know my name. It doesn't matter. She doesn't have to know who I am or what I do or any of those things. I recognized that it was already there. It was complete and there was nothing that I could do about it. And that became like I was talking about the aunt that wasn't really the aunt. She was mirroring that to me too. So it was just this collapsing of the searching I was doing without even realizing I was searching. It was more of the honeybee to the flower type searching. Right after that, of course, everything she said really upset me. Right. Because, well, what I was hearing was I was nobody. And at that time, I felt the unconditional love, but ego or separation or how I was functioning there really just wanted to give her a middle finger. I was really angry. And it was a whole bunch of hot energy of anger that was coming up. But by grace, I knew that I had to come back to her because I could see it penetrated so deeply that I couldn't put it on her. I could not point and make her wrong. It was so clear that nothing could stick and that I knew that it was just me experiencing that, that it had nothing to do with her. I didn't know what a teacher was or a true teacher or satsang or anything, but it was all very clear that this person was the way I was experiencing when I said very young, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. She was the way it was supposed to be. And it was very clear to me. Interesting. I interviewed a woman last week named Jessica Nathanson, who has a website called The Glorious Both And. And um, the whole discussion was about how Neo-Advaita has been extremely harmful for many people, in her opinion. What? Neo-Advaita has been extremely harmful for many people. And she puts together support groups now where, you know, all these people with horror stories come in about, you know, having gotten extremely depersonalized and disassociated and 
to the point of feeling suicidal and all. There's a truth to a statement such as that you are nobody, but there's also a, a misapplication of many such statements, which if they hit a person at the wrong stage of their development can cause spiritual bypassing and uh, a breakdown of personality. As someone yeah. put it, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at that point, it was somehow seen through. Yeah, it was probably way. the right thing for you at the right time. Yeah. And I think also with what happened to me as a very young child, and then again in my 20s, there was this fertile ground there that was really devouring of what was appearing. And so I can certainly see what you're talking about, but it felt to me like I was being carried by grace. I felt I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I I didn't have an environment around me to lean on, but inside and then what was showing up in my life felt like a mother's loving arms. Yeah. No, I'm not in any way discounting your experience. It just seems like you were a target that was ready to hit with that particular. Yeah, yeah, I was right. And I have noticed that too in my own, the way teaching has appeared here. Teaching wasn't something I chose to do. It just ended up being asked of me later down the road. I actually moved away from it for a very long time. And it wasn't until I met Adia that I actually said yes to that. You know, we could talk more about Neelam. We'll get to that. So you had that meeting. And then uh, I guess it took a while before you really reconnected with Neelam, as I understand it. Yeah. I mean, we weren't ever living in the same place. So she came to Sedona. And then really when I ended up in Boulder, which took a, a couple of years, she was traveling up there fairly often. So I would get to see her maybe a handful of times while I was there. But it was sitting with her and just really cooking is what I say. You know, I sat in the back. I didn't ask her questions, but I always was feeling the same energy. There was jealousy. Why? Because there was some story going on that she was higher and I was lower. So you're jealous of her, like envious of her state or something? It was just there. It wasn't like I was spending too much time thinking about it. It was just like energetically feeling it. And it was feeling very, very hot. And I would just sit there and almost sweat. And there were other things, but a lot of what she was saying, it was pointing to the ego's destruction. And just her transmission was pointing to ego's destruction. And so there was this wrestling that was happening with that. And I came to understand and feel it that every person that spoke with her, and I had a lot of anxiety around talking in front of people. I always struggled with that. I was always the person in the back, very quiet. And that regard, it was not like a super confident person to like express. But the gift of that was, is I found everybody that was talking, even if their story wasn't exactly the same as my story, I was able to see their suffering was the same as my suffering. And so there was this deepening that started happening of experiencing the other as my very self, even though I was having so much energy that I wasn't able to get up there and speak with her. 
And then eventually I did have some private meetings with her. And I like to say this because if you are into my style of teaching, I don't really teach like that at all. I'm very interactive. People come up into what they call the hot seat. There's a lot of back and forth. I really break out of that role of somebody sitting down and listening to the teacher talk to them. I am very interested in very quickly teacher within speaking and then really bowing to that and leaning into like what's arising and I can shut up. I'm happy to do that, to no longer be required as quickly as possible. That's kind of my, (laughs) you know. Did you ever meet my old friend, Phil Hirshhorn when you were with uh, Neelam? No. He's a big Neelam fan. We've known each other for a long time. My friend Life, I met through Neelam. We're still uh, good friends. Pamela Wilson. Oh, Pamela, sure. uh, We're connected. I met Nirmala briefly once, but we didn't really get to spend much time together. It's like this big, loosely knit family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um... at the end of that part, there was one woman in a particular satsang that was asking, why are you up there teaching? What gives you the right to teach? And she proceeded to talk about Papaji. And her story about Papaji, or that she was responding about it, I don't even remember the words so much. But when she spoke about Papaji, this love that just appeared, so the transmission. And then she had a tear that came out of her eye. And that tear, I just fell into the tear. And then as the tear went down her face, and I was the tear, then all of me started bowing to Neelam. It was a foom, 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 and it was just a down. And not only down, it was a down to her, it was a down to Papaji, it was a down to Ramana, down to Buddha, down to Jesus, and all. It was just boom. And at the end of that meeting, it was all I could do. I just basically crawled to her feet. <laughs> Literally? Literally. Huh. And um, put my hand down and she just started patting my head. And I was like, I'm never leaving her feet again. My whole being was, it was like lifetimes. It felt like I was devotional and that I was back. I was where I was to be. It was very intense because it came online really quickly. We already were, you know, I had had my first child, which was a very powerful opening for me with labor and stuff of presence, but that really got me fertile for this. But we already had tickets bought. We were already moving somewhere else. And it was like happening within a week or two. I was sitting there going, I could see my whole family going away. I could see it all ending and being at her feet. It all came back to me in like a big whoosh. And it wasn't like there was anything wrong with that. What happened was, and what I heard was, this is not your lifetime. This is not what happens this lifetime. This lifetime, you're in the world. And I could feel the excitement of being in the world and being in, in life. And so it was both this deep relief in a way that I cannot describe. And then without remorse or regret, getting up and moving, leaving. Yeah, that's good. And 
I would say that if you had, although it's a moot point because you wouldn't have done this, but if you had somehow tossed your family in to stay with Neelam, it would have been a big mistake. Yeah, yeah it was so clear. What I felt was that I needed to not be around her because it's too strong for me. It almost felt like it's okay. She's right here. I can feel her. I can feel that transmission of the unique flavor or and of Ramana and of all of it here. Right? Maybe you had and gotten the main thing you needed to get from being around her. Well, when I moved to Asheville, it really affected people that were around me. There was a lot of transmission happening. And so some of my dear friends began inviting her to Asheville. So she came and she had some health issues and wasn't able to travel after a period of time. She has this sensitivity to electrical fields and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But prior to that, she came and it was beautiful. And then when we couldn't meet anymore, we, you know, there were letters (laughs) or someone calling me on her behalf, those kinds of things before, like all the technology, you know, at that time, it wasn't really clear what had happened here. It was very apparent because it seemed when I would meet people, there would just be such heart opening and presence here and with the apparent other. But I also had a brand new baby and I had just gotten married. I was really feeling drawn to become like a real estate agent and buying a house, getting a mortgage and all these things. And that felt so right. And then in all of that life, I was able to see in a way that if I wasn't on a mountaintop, or for me in particular, like in an ashram or sitting in meditation, what I was able to find was that my teacher was in everything in my life, showing me what was left, because I could feel there was stuff that was left. It was like this big openness, but my brain was sort of foggy, and I couldn't quite speak about what I was experiencing and what I could translate that with was actually like some things that were showing up in my life that I would have never experienced. And I'm not saying that everybody else has to experience the way I experienced it. But for me, the fear I had when my child had double pneumonia, it took me to some place. If that had happened to me, it would have been fine. I wasn't struggling there. But happening to my child, there was tremendous energy showing up. There was tremendous things to open up to. For my husband and our relationship and this way of moving in the unknown in the world brought up things that were still unmet, untouched, and loved. So through that, that's sort of where most of my teaching comes from. I didn't have time to meditate. I was breastfeeding or I was showing a house or whatever, but I found that the desire to end the suffering, it just appeared spontaneously in the car driving or in the shower with the water, like it would just arise and I would be tending to energy or thoughts or whatever so that I could see that there's nothing that can stop us from waking up. We don't need to go anywhere. It's fine if we do, but it's not something that there's nothing that I found could stop my deepening. Yeah. That seems to be more evidently true for some people than for others. You, it seemed like from an early age, were on the the fast track. You had this intuitive 
sense of not this and this and you know moving along and okay enough of that on to the next thing so there's always been this momentum in your life it seems other people might need a little bit more something i do feel like it's not so different than when people are on fire to search it's just a different kind of flavor if somebody is really learning Buddhism and they're drawn to that, if they're really feeling drawn to TM, those are very intense draws and intense movements to take in the slowing down, the tuning in and all these things. And that didn't necessarily happen for me that way, but that is also a flavor of the same thing. It I think what it is. Same impulse. Yeah. And it can just look in a whole bunch of different ways. And that is arising inside. It's arising again and again and again. I think what it is, is that it's the falling off the cliff without grabbing onto a branch or the cul-de-sac that you can get in. As Adia likes to say, I I like that image of the cul-de-sac. I like to say the hamster in the habit trail kind of thing. But anywhere I could have said no, and it would have changed. And so it was the opening and the bowing, like, Anything that we do, we have to let go of it, no matter what structure it is, what religion it is ultimately, or not that the greatest gift can't be found in those. There's this moving out of the functioning of the ego and the observer observing it. So whatever the apparent system is, or like however that looks, that that is dissolving, and then the deepest gift becomes available to us this direct life force of our being that ends separation. And what I usually say to folks, and this is how it would show for me, is like, what is your deepest prayer? Not your ego's prayer. What is your deepest prayer? And that lining up with this alive energy that is really full of gravity and yearning of the truest energy. Yeah. The force of evolution is a powerful thing. It's a motivating force for the whole universe. And it, mm-hmm. in people, it, it sometimes shows up as a little faint flicker and other times as like this roaring force that can't be denied. And in your case, I think if you had, you said you could, could have said no at any time, I don't know how long you would have been able to stick to that no. Yeah, I don't think I would have very long. <laughs> but you know, it's very mysterious. And there's no way for us to actually know how all this is going down. Everything gets really fishy when we start making things higher or lower or better. If I feel into it, everything starts to get very infinite and spacious. And then it feels like a lot of anywhere we want to try to say, but, or having this energy where we're managing or choosing or it's going to start putting us in a separate place. There's some Rumi poem where he talks about how you're playing chess or cards or something with God, and you think you've got all these great moves. And I forget how the poem goes exactly, but you know, you're basically toast, you know, because God's always going to play chess better than you can. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I love. Know that. that poem I'm talking about? I forget. No, it. but it's beautiful. Yeah. I'd like for you to. I'd like for you to send me that poem. I'll try to find it. Okay. How did you find Adya? How did he find you? With Adya, with the householder life happening, dear friends, 
in this life. They brought yeah. Adia in okay. for like a weekend retreat, a short retreat. That first time I didn't even know who he was and I didn't even go see him. But then my friends brought him a second time between that first and second time. I was introduced to some video satsang that was happening that people were going to because, you know, they have those across the cities where people gather and watch his videos. And then that, his transmission, I really became very curious about him. My friends, I said, man, I would love to meet him. I want to go next time he comes. But these are the same friends that brought Neelam and they just arranged for him to stay with me at my home. That's great. (laughs) Muhammad comes to the mountain. Yes. <laughs> the next time he came, he stayed at my home. The nice. that I live in right now. And it was beautiful because a lot of people came over and cleaned my house. Before <laughs> he came. That's great. Like really scrubbed everything. And so I like to talk about this. I went to the airport to pick him up, me and my friends. And my friend also said, well, you just take him home instead of all of us. It was him and uh, Terry Gray. Person- yeah. Oh, you know her. They came here too. Oh, I love her so much. Anyway, I saw him, walked up. It was the back of his head. And I just saw the back of his head and uh, energy just hit me. Like it was uh, basically, I I felt like I was going to fall over. And it seemed like I fell over, but I didn't. And then the next feeling that I had was, oh, I'm done for. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm done for that proceeded to kind of untie over the next, I don't know, period of time, but leaving from the airport and just driving home. I mean, just the energy, it was all I could do to drive the car. And then I could just feel everything just, it was all taken care of this untying, you know, whatever it was that was remaining here. And then him staying with us, we ended up having some great conversations Mostly a lot of silliness. <laughs> we had to know we silly together. But towards the end of the trip, we went out to dinner after one of the meetings. He and I ended up getting out of the car and going to the restaurant, and we were on our own. I think Terry was with us, too. And I told him, folks keep asking me to teach. It had been going on almost for 10 years, and it was happening more. Like wanting to come to my house. And people have been coming to my house for quite a while. And then most of these were these really close friends. That we're bringing Adia. And he said, you know, if people are asking to talk, talk, I said, well, you know, I feel like there's still a veil. It feels like I can see through it, but I can still feel it on my face. I said, I feel like there's just something still here. And he said, if people ask you to talk, talk. And so that just opening and me just saying yes to that, my intention of saying no was really, I didn't want to do anything that could hurt anyone. And a lot of it, it was just, it just said that, you know, that integrity was really important. And that it also later down the road in our conversations that he had a similar style as me. If his teachings went away tomorrow, that would be fine. For me, it's never been my greatest desire to be a teacher. And for me, being a teacher only appears as it appears. And then it's not appearing. For most of this, I've been a householder and a mother and a volleyball mom and a ballet, whatever. And I'm just those things. So I'm just, it appears as teacher just when it appears. But he said that 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 can be a very good recipe because there's not that extra. That's a good point. I respect you for that. It's actually formally part of 
some traditions that even after a profound awakening, you're supposed to wait 10 years before you teach. And perhaps more yeah. people should do that. I've heard stories of people being in an Aja retreat or some such place and saying to their friend, well, I can't wait to wake up so I can quit my day job and become a teacher. You know? <laughs> right. Then you just know there's something going on. Wrong you know, motivation. Right, right. Is the invisibility there? Is the full nobody there? So if it doesn't, then it's going to like come out in the teachings. It's going to karmically show up there because there hasn't been the whole nete nete. Just you know, in case people don't know, this this phrase neti neti is means not that, not that. It's a it's a traditional teaching phrase in Vedanta. Anyway, just in case somebody doesn't know. Yeah, what that and phrase I'm is. not even you know that transmission is alive in me, but I don't necessarily even know a lot of the words. I've never right. really even studied it. I have whatever how this functions, and then you know that transmission of Neil and that transmission of audio definitely I feel that. Yeah. But I also feel like when I'm drawn to just like with, I see Adia, this passion of like being drawn to a teaching and reading about someone, or I love Hafiz, especially the Sufi poet, the poet, there's a collapse. And then all of a sudden it feels like I'm, I wrote the poetry and it's not the small me. The time collapses and the transmission is this alive gift. That's our very nature. So when we get really uncomplicated with it and how our mind wants to like move into separation, that really this alive direct transmission that is always ready to permeate through the illusion of separation, that it's working in everything with a tree. You can feel a tree and a tree is inside and then outside. That's so easy. Or a baby in his eyes or a dog and that smile. The separation is so automatic. It's just when there's trouble. When you get the mirror and then something happens here and then that's something that happens here, then that's the gift. That's grace. That's like where we go right into that. It's the separation and the way we function and the turning and saying, no, that's perpetuating it, not allowing the healing to happen, the returning. In case anybody wonders about this transmission thing, there really is something to it. And, and, you know, simple metaphor would be like, candles where you light somebody else's candle and then they can light somebody else's candle and the flame doesn't necessarily diminish as it goes from candle to candle in fact could get even brighter if it's a bigger candle so um there's definitely a phenomenon that's been going on in many traditions for a long long time and there's no reason why it can't be going on now with mothers in north carolina <laughs> yeah yeah actually and transmission two people laughing really hard it's mm -hmm. transmission. It's infectious. It's alive. It's full. It's complete. You can't hold on to your name. You can't hold on to your job or your position or and you're laughing really hard. It all goes away. Nice. Yeah. So when you're actually teaching, you teach fairly often. I often get these emails from the Asheville Sangha. What happens? What do you do in there in the room? And what kind of experiences do people have? And do you feel that the people who are coming to your satsangs, that a pretty good percentage of them actually undergo significant shifts. And do those shifts abide in some way? Or do they just kind of get high off the meeting and go home and nothing much has changed? What kind of feedback are you getting from people? Initially, I'll just respond to what, similar to what I said in the part of our conversation earlier. So I think there's probably a little bit of all of it. Because as people are searching, they're sort of in all... They're all over the map. 
Right. They're like, some of them are ripe. Some of them are just becoming interested in and being drawn to, a, to something that's mirroring that clearly. You know, I have this feeling of it's all welcome. I have retreats and very often there's quite a lot of people who have never been to retreat or know anything about inquiry along with people who have been in Sangha quite a long time. And I think the beauty is that it's all over the place. People that never had experience, they're having these deep awakenings. There's also this gradual awakening. I saw Gangaji once and I heard her, and maybe you've heard her with this story, as she said, some people are like paper. They catch fire really quick. Some people are like sticks. They catch fire pretty quick. And then some people are like rocks. You put them on the fire and they'll burn up too. And so what I have found in teaching and in retreats and one-on-ones with people, small groups, and, and then over either either in that one particular meeting or over time, depending on the person, is that we are all those things. Sometimes I've been a rock. Sometimes I've been paper. Sometimes you've been scissors. Sometimes I've been scissors, right? Rock, like rock, paper, scissors. Dynamite. I'm more often, I'm dynamite. Uh-huh. <laughs> this reminds me. I, more I have of the like of, chop uh, the head off stuff, right? <laughs> for one thing, it reminds me of Christ's parable of the sower. You were a Christian. You remember this where a man throws a bunch of seeds out and some of it falls on rocky soil. Nothing much happens with it. Some of it falls on fertile soil and it sprouts up really quick, but the fertile soil is shallow. And so it doesn't flourish and others fall on fertile soil that's deep and so it, it continues to grow and there's all kinds of degrees of receptivity in any audience oh i love that word different degrees of receptivity that's really beautiful that has the transmission of that is really beautiful if you were to fill the energy prior because your brain is deciding to use those words describing an energy prior and that energy that i feel it's broader than what our words can describe that's where your awakening is my awakening. Your way of saying it, I could never say it quite like that. So I just got this awakening from that transmission, okay. well, those you're, words. You're saying things well. I have a couple of uh, Nasargadatta quotes that have been on my mind lately, and I, I want to read them to you and see what you think okay. about them. And the, the first one relates to what we were just saying, I think, which is you seem to want instant insight, forgetting that instant is always preceded by a long preparation. The fruit falls suddenly, but the ripening takes time. This is how I interpret that. This may just be one flavor of it. It's like when you have an awakening, there tends to be an immediately a grasping afterwards. And so then if there's not a grasping and, you know, what I found in inquiry with that is like, oh, I use this imagery of a room that's dark. And you don't know what you're looking at inside the room, but the awakening is the light that goes on and that you see what's inside the room and um, saying that abiding, non-abiding state, the light goes off again. But even though it's dark, you know what's inside the room. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you can't forget it. Not only can you can't forget it, it's not even a can't forget it, it's alive inside you yeah so it's like whatever that is it it will show up when it's required it will show up and then not only that i feel like a lot of times what happens after that and this kind of describes sort of a deepening or a fuller embodiment of what you awaken to is that you may find a situation 
or something that is making whatever you've woken up to turn into words and action. And so then it's fully experienced in the mind or used through voice or through movement in the body. There ends up being this kind of deeper grokking or this deeper embodiment and that apparent time that may happen immediately and may happen incrementally. It's very mysterious, but that we're always guided, protected, supported, and loved, right? And then everything is just untying in a way because our nature has no interest. If there isn't resistance to it, there's no interest in maintaining it. It takes a whole lot of energy to maintain separation. One idea that came to mind as you were saying that, and I think this is maybe what you actually intended to say, which is something can happen, like you're meeting with Neelam or something that experience you had when you were three or four, you know, with the waking up from a nap or various things that people have. And even though we move on and get involved in other things, it's like a ticking time bomb. Something has been planted, which is fructifying, which is working away within us. Eventually will come out on the surface or, or blossom into some effect or some realization. Like if a person thinks, for instance, that, oh, I remember I had this great spiritual experience five years ago and I kind of missed that. That's still in, in you. I mean, it's still there and it's doing it. It's doing its thing and it's cooking along. I love it. The word cooking along. I yeah. use those kind of words a lot. I like <laughs> to use the word simmering, but cooking along feels really good too. I like the word along in there because simmering just has things, but a cooking along has this feeling of it's pointing to regular life and this kind of gradual apparent process and a softness and availability to that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You really describe that well, because cooking along has like just this nice, soft, open, normal energy. Now, I'm trying to think of positive examples of this to use as a metaphor, because there's all kinds of negative examples like dry rot or termites or cancer or something that, that has this insidious effect that you don't see, but that's growing within you. I'm trying to think of a positive example of something because that really happens, I think, with spirituality. There's well, something well, think, percolating. Yes, I like percolating, but I also like to invite in all of those images that you just said you know, if you felt into them and then felt into the negative aspects of the negative energy, which would be some form of turning or closing or saying no, then what you might be left with is more of the cycle of life and then the beauty turning into the beauty of it. Because really all of this opening is a death to a lot of things that we use and separation. And what becomes scary inside of it becomes beautiful. So it's like the rose isn't just beautiful when it's a bud and blooming. We're all of a sudden able to see the beauty when it starts changing colors and having this other way that it looks. And we become awake to it and available to it and not having it be a less than thing that's happening because that's what's happening all around us. Life is in this constant energetic movement of change. So going back to what you were saying with those words that I think in inquiry, they can naturally transform to a welcome and home. Okay, good. Here's another quote. You know, a lot of times people have this static notion 
of enlightenment or awakening. They see it as this shining city on the hill that they're going to reach and then just live in the city. But my feeling about it or understanding of it is that there's no end to growth. There's another nice quote from uh, Nisargadatta that he said towards the end of his life. His book was called I Am That. He said, forget I am that. I realized so much more since then. It's so much deeper. Yeah, yeah. What you're talking about is a perspective and it's a belief system. And so when we have direct experience with true nature, our wisdom really dissolves that perspective. You know, we can only really hold that experience when we're holding our nature away and looking at it. But because wait a minute. I mean, cer- direct- certainly Nisargadatta had direct experience of true nature. Are you saying that that perspective that I just read was somehow erroneous? No, no, no. I think I'm speaking to it. Will you, oh, okay. will you say it one more time? Mm-hmm. In other words, he's basically saying that he's grown a lot since I Am That was written. But he said, forget I Am That. I realized so much more since then. It's so much deeper. He's basically <laughs> saying I, I'm continuing to grow. Yes, I think that's what it is. Exactly what I'm saying. Whatever you were saying earlier, talking about the perspective of acquiring bliss and keeping bliss, is that what you were talking about? What was the prior thing you were saying before what his response was? You, you were mean saying, the previous quote I read? No, yeah. Not, well, the first the previous quote was about fruit falls suddenly, but it takes a while to ripen. No, no, no. It no. was after that. You said about bliss. What did you say about bliss? Maybe I was talking about how... Things can be growing within you that you, you're not even aware and that they fructify after a while, after right. quietly growing when you might not think you're making any progress. A good example of that is you go through a tunnel and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere because it's dark and you can't see the progress. And then you come out the other end and, oh, a whole new vista here I've, that now that I've gone through this tunnel. So I guess what I would just say to that last thing that we're talking about it is that my own direct experience is that there doesn't seem to be any ending. Right. And it doesn't seem to be any bottom. There's no place that we land. I'm constantly being humbled. Or it's really not even humbleness anymore. I've tossed the humbleness out. But there was a lot of humbleness of feeling like, oh, you know, I had this phantom limb feeling like how I experienced it or saw it. And then all of a sudden I'm having this whole new type of experiencing something or energetic experiencing. And then the words maybe deepening will be applicable to that. But as I've felt into it over and over again, and I say that I do not see there's any ending to that. I cannot wake up to everything. I cannot wake up to all of life. You know, I have this particular life. I will see things on TV. It'll rise up here and waken up to it, but I'm not going to have every experience in life. So your awakening is my awakening. And that's this deepening here. And then also like my father passing away, this was way after meeting Adia, but there was things that arose there that couldn't happen prior. And I find that that still is happening. The main thing is, it's not that waking up is being separate from life. It's just that there's nobody there to say no. There's still things unraveling here. And who knows? Who knows how that goes? And that's life. There's an opening to what is. With that, the heart is like, oh, you say, my heart can't open in this. Well, then check it out. See. See if, if that's really true. And then that is the deepening. 
That's good. I guess the reason I bring it up is that um, I think it's important to have a, a fairly clear understanding of the nature of the path. And for various reasons, it can be a, a danger to oneself to feel that one has reached some kind of end point and is impeccable and incapable of making mistakes. And I've actually yeah. heard, heard people yeah. say that and then yeah. they make yeah. huge mistakes. We so, have to bring the sword out for that, right? <laughs> yeah, so that's a danger. It's also a pitfall for students sometimes if they emulate a teacher to the point where they consider them infallible. Well, I talked to Adia about that. I was asking and he's like, you can't really stop people from doing that. Also, I feel the same way. The word teacher doesn't really resonate for me. You know, it's maybe closer to friend. I could show up that way if it's helpful. But then my deepest desire is for you to find teacher alive and well and complete within you. We've done a lot of talking today. I usually start engaging the other person and talking a lot less. And then I sit back and listen to teacher talk. So that's my preference for us to engage in a way where you can have your own, whatever it is that's going on that then I can be supporting or I can be to this tenderness that's here, you know, what's arising to open to. And then instead of just hearing about it, you can have your own direct experience and we can ask the questions. I feel like that is the greatest service that I can give. Well, if I came to one of your satsangs, but this is an interview of you and I talk too much. I'm constantly being told I talk too much. Well, you asked me what my satsangs were like. (laughs) Oh, yes. Right. That's what they're like. So I want to try to give a flavor of that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So you mean you have just given us a flavor of that by describing it, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, how could you do it by describing it? It's very weird. Yeah. It's still a bit intellectual and not in direct experience. Well, people have seen songs like that. They've seen Gangaji, you know, those videotapes of Gangaji doing her thing, or Byron Katie, or one of these people where there's two of them sitting up on stage and the other person's doing most of the talking. And then Gangaji or Byron Katie or something, you know, interjects and says key things at certain times. You're speaking of doing something in that style. Well, I think what, you know, my deepest prayer is to be available to whatever serves. So it's going back to not one thing. It's kind of like the paper to the rock, but in a different context. Sometimes it seems for someone, it seems like what they're really, their deepest desire is to have a deep drink, to really open up to the ground of their being. And there's something that's really at service for them in that way. And then sometimes there's something that's really tight and it's a story or it's it's just energy or, and there's just enough just to be tender with it. And so that could be just moving out of circling the energy and that kind of like to like softening and it disappearing the this and that, and it just being this softness of the energy can move. So there's just this wide range of whatever I'm open to whatever it occurs. And when it appears, it becomes really natural. And like by what someone says and then their energy inside of what they're saying. And then I'm your very self. You're my very self. Your suffering is my suffering. Your awakening is my awakening. So in that bowing to the beloved, however, this body, this voice, however I can be of service, then I'm at your feet because your awakening is my awakening. It's the same as my own inquiry to waking up. Opening up here is a natural movement to bow to what appears as the other 
because there's this direct experience that's the same. So it feels very common sense. It feels very ordinary and regular to move and be at service to the suffering of the apparent other. Do you do any online stuff or is it all in person? Yes, because COVID. I didn't do any online stuff before COVID. For a decade, just our little sangha here in Asheville. So we could still continue meeting. We started doing that. I also started doing small groups, which have turned into this really amazing new format because people were willing to get together outside and a group of like four or five people. So Sangha was still being able to connect with each other. And we found, and I found in this new type of environment that it was less formal and easier for this connection, community, this uh, flowing of energy not necessarily like the teacher person sitting there and people sitting there yeah, looking. Nice little like, circle. Yeah, or on the ground, more informal, but finding it a deep, deep service and a lot of deep work. I don't know if that's the best word for it, but this occurred because of that. So I have brought those into retreats. Also, the Wellbeing Center in Tazewell, Tennessee, that is home for me. Don and Patty, Don, he's a not the director, but he's on Adia's board. And Patty had Terry's job prior to Terry, right-hand person for Adia. Oh, that's right. I remember Mukti going to Tennessee to do some retreats. That must be Yeah, so she does, up until COVID, yearly retreats there. For me, 10 years ago, meeting them, it was home. Everything that they build there is every nail, every plant, everything is all bowing to truth, is bowing to this very direct pointing, the land and everything. So as the kids were growing up, I did one retreat a year. That's all I could do. Taught a retreat. Yeah, that's all I was doing. But when COVID hit and they had such a great structure set up for COVID that I started doing many retreats there, maybe three or four. So those retreats have brought in people from other places in the world. So the Zoom meetings now are very diverse, people from California, Florida, Canada. And so there's been a broader range of people coming in with Zoom. And I found that whatever, I'm not a very computer savvy person, but that I found that transmission or or service or Sangha is alive and well, like whatever format, I've just really gotten that it's this, this whole time, space, energy, whatever, all can just dissolve and just bow and be at service. So now we return to in-person meetings here in town that we do twice a month. You can find that on our website. And then we also are continuing the two Zoom meetings a month. Those are on um, the first and third Wednesdays. The in-person is second and fourth Tuesdays for in-person. And we have a three-night silent retreat coming up at the Wellbeing Center in September. That's, uh, I believe, the 8th. begins on the 8th. It's quite delicious. We started doing day-longs, so there is a day-long retreat happening in October, and that should be on the calendar. If people sign up on the email list, they'll get invitations. And as I can, as my schedule allows, I still have a kid at home. I still live very much a householder life. But as the kids get older and other things are changing, it seems to be changing where I'm having more time to put in these events. Good. And just new and creative ways happening all the time. 
And it's 2022 now as we speak, August, and somebody might be watching this four or five years from now. And so all these references to September and all yeah, won't be yeah. relevant. But yeah. if they come to your website and if you're still yeah. doing this stuff, yep. they can see sure. what's going on. Yeah. Good. Well, is there anything more that you feel like you'd like to say before we wrap it up? Um, I think I already touched on it earlier, that awakening is found in regular, ordinary life. That's what I have found. And every moment is an opportunity to meet what's unmet, untouched, unloved. All the ordinary moments in life are pointing us home. And then just however that is showing up here is the invitation. One way of putting it is that awakening is not, or at least should not be extraordinary. It should be normal and ordinary and everyone's birthright and something that everyone grows into in the normal course of a human lifetime. And yeah, what, I mean, what a different world we would have if that were the norm. Yeah. And it's the strangest thing on the other side of the coin is, is just really that's all there is. All there is, is what's here and awake and alive and free. And really it's more just this psychological trauma of separation that we're experiencing that's really what's appearing really we don't have to go anywhere we have to do anything it's in the doing that we're actually turning from and the tenderness and the allowing and the resting and the okayness and the relaxing returning that what is always here comes online it's alive everything is alive here present Good. All righty. Well, thanks so much, Alaya. Alaya um, or Alaya. Alaya or Alaya. I mean, both of them work. Both and my name is very has been like a breadcrumb all the way through, and both of those. I keep reverting to Alaya because I think that's the way it would be pronounced in Sanskrit. Which, but I, I'm from I'm, the south. I know you're from the south, so Alaya. Saying Alaya also, I connect with that too. The whole gamut of where that name lands and different cultures. So it has an invitation for me and all the different ways that it shows up. Good. Okay. Thanks to you. And thanks to those who have been listening or watching. If you want to see who we have scheduled coming up, go to batgap.com and look at the upcoming interviews page. And if you want to find more out more about Alea, she'll have a page on batgap.com where I'll have links to anything she wants me to put, probably just mainly to her website. You can go there and then sign up for her email list and see what she's got planned and tune into her zoom sessions and, and everything else. Yes. My beloved, I am at your feet. (laughs) Great. So thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.